Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Uh, for those of you who maybe are new listeners to the, the, the pod, I've been doing this since about what, November of 2017, uh, releasing about one podcast a week and tend to bounce between a couple different things. Uh, one would be new drug approvals. The other would be updates in oncology pharmacy, so new information that comes out uh, to try and get that out to listeners as rapidly as possible. Uh, foundations of oncology, so the bread and butter about uh, the drugs we use on a daily basis, and then kind of landmark analysis or landmark discussion of journals, uh, journal articles or journal club uh, type activities of landmark clinical trials that really change practice. So today I want to do something a little bit different, and that is look um, at uh, oncology pharmacy from a disease state focus. Uh, and with the, um, the approval on uh, the 16th of August, so just last week of uh, nivolumab in the third line setting for small cell lung cancer, I thought this would be a nice time to maybe take a stab and see what this looks like and talk about small cell lung cancer at the very end, we'll talk about the nivolumab approval. So, so lung cancer is, uh, at least in the United States, uh, the most deadly cancer, the most common cancer. Um, and of course, hugely linked to smoking. Um, we know this now. Uh, if you watch Mad Men, um, you know, we didn't really know this um, completely maybe in the early 60s, although uh, most people were kind of on board back then. Most lung cancers are non-small cell lung cancer, and that's about 85% of all lung cancers are non-small cell lung cancer. And treatment of non-small cell lung cancer is becoming increasingly complex uh, and driven by both histology and genomic differences of the tumor. Small cell lung cancer makes up about 15% of lung cancers. Uh, this was originally called oat cell carcinoma. In fact, I can recall in anatomy and physiology in undergrad looking at a chest x-ray of what was called oat cell carcinoma. It's actually small cell lung cancer. It looked like little, you know, Quaker oats all over the chest x-ray. Um, small cell lung cancer is much more aggressive than non-small cell lung cancer. Um, so it grows a lot faster, much more likely to be uh, disseminated metastatic at diagnosis. And it has neuroendocrine features uh, which leads to a high percentage of perineoplastic syndromes of diagnosis like the Eaton-Lambert myasthenic gravis syndrome, SIADH or syndrome of inappropriate diuretic hormone, and then some other ones too. There can actually be uh, antibodies against the neuroendocrine tissue in small cell lung cancer uh, that then uh, cross-react with um, CNS disease that can cause confusion and things like that. So uh, much of that stems from the neuroendocrine derivation of small cell lung cancer. Uh, with all cancers, you know, there are, are three ways to treat cancer. So surgery, which we'll see has no benefit in small cell lung cancer. There's radiation, yeah, we use radiation therapy, and then chemo, and of course we're gonna talk a lot about chemo. Um, the reason that this nivolumab approval uh, was, was really hyped is that we have not had a new drug approved for small cell lung cancer in 30 years. And as um, I thought this would be a relatively quick podcast to do because there, has not, there have not been a lot of advances in small cell lung cancer, um, you know, it, certainly in my lifetime and maybe in, um, you know, my parents' lifetime. So uh, we're going to kind of go through this and we're going to lead, you know, we're talking about the established advances or maybe the landmark things that we learned about small cell lung cancer. Uh, we'll talk about the general treatment approach to small cell lung cancer, some clinical pearls, things to look out for in these patients. 
kind of typical presentation. And again, we'll end talking about um, you know the, the recent advance with nivolumab's approval and, and maybe what's on the horizon for treating small cell lung cancer. Okay, well, let's get into this. Uh, so in 1942, uh, nitrogen mustard was used for small cell lung cancer. Um, and I'm taking most of this stuff. There's a great review article written by uh, Haddadin and Perry in 2011 in Clinical Lung Cancer, which I'll tweet out, uh, and you guys can find that. So nitrogen mustard was the first chemotherapy drug we had, and if all you have is a hammer, in this case the hammer is nitrogen mustard, then every problem or cancer that you see is going to be a nail. So of course the first chemotherapy drug was tried for small cell lung cancer, and you know, there were responses seen in about half of patients. Uh, let's fast forward uh, 1968 we see um, something at the time may not have been a, in, that important, but now is huge, and that is the staging system is very different for small cell lung cancer than any other cancers. For most you know, solid tumors, you're gonna do the ATNM staging based on tumor nodal status, uh, plus or minus distant metastases, so T for tumor, N for nodes, M for mets. So small cell lung cancer is staged differently. It is staged as either limited stage disease or extensive stage disease. Limited stage being defined as all the cancers on one side of the lung. Not necessarily because that means it hasn't spread, although that's probably true and hopefully true, but because all the disease can be in, uh, safely irradiated in one radiation field. As we'll see, that's really important. So that's that came in 1968 from a veteran affairs uh, study group. In 1969, uh, the English uh, Medical Research Council, uh, publishing uh, in Lancet uh, with Miller as lead author, shows that radiation therapy is superior to surgery in the treatment of small cell lung cancer. Uh, the five-year overall survival rate was paltry, 4% for radiation versus 1% for surgery. And that 1%, that, that one patient that was alive five years later that was randomized to the surgery group did not get surgery because the patient couldn't breathe very well and was not a candidate for surgery and actually got radiation. So all the people who were quote cured or alive five years later had radiation. And this really, you know, should have put the, the nail in the coffin of using radiation for small cell. It is so aggressive that it is not a local disease. It is a systemic disease or at least a locally advanced disease at best case scenario and diagnosis. Uh, so if that was the final nail in the coffin, this was in 1973, landmark study by Matthews, uh, published in Cancer and Chemotherapy Research. Uh, they, uh, they looked at patients who happened to die within 30 days of, quote, curative surgery for small cell lung cancer. So these patients get diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, they go in, they have a lobectomy uh, or a pneumonectomy, whatever it may be, and then they're considered no evidence disease cured. And then for whatever reason, they died 30 days later. Upon autopsy, these patients had signs of metastatic disease in most cases, um, kind of confirming what, confirming the suspicion that this is a systemic disease that is often widely and diffusely spread and or metastatic at diagnosis, which that sets the stage now that we know that radiation is better, we know that chemotherapy has a role to combine chemo and radiation in 1973, or, or 1979, we see that cyclophosphamide plus radiation is better than radiation alone in limited stage disease. By the 1980s, uh, kind of the current standard regimen of etoposide and cisplatin uh, enters the treatment paradigm. By 1987, we see that chemo and radiation is better than chemo alone. Um, and uh, as far as uh, the chemotherapy regimens, one of the early regimens, uh, multi-drug regimens, was CAVE. 
So this was cyclophosphamide C. Uh, doxorubicin is the A for brand name adriamycin, and then vincristine, CAVE. And that was compared to EP by Roth and Johnson and Einhorn in 1992, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And overall response rates for CAVE were 51% compared to 61% for EP. So 51 versus 61, that wasn't statistically significant, although EP numerically was higher. And then the median overall survival was 8.3 versus 8.6 months, uh, no difference. So three drugs versus two drugs, and the EP, um, Two drugs was just as good. Um, Sundstrom and colleagues in 2002, writing uh, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology for the Norwegian Lung Cancer Group, um, little sidebar here, um, most Americans see my name, B-O-S-S-A-R, and they, they say Basser or Bosser because um, it looks French to them. But the first bazaars in America were Dutch and spoke Dutch. Um, and the only person who's ever pronounced my name correctly without being told first, just read it, was a Norwegian flight attendant. So uh, I have a soft spot for Norwegians. And they were the ones who brought us this study comparing CEP, so epirubicin instead of doxorubicin. So again, cyclophosphamide and anthracycline and vincristine compared to etoposide um, and cisplatin. Um, so two-year overall survival rate was 5% versus 14% favoring cisplatin and etoposide. And a five-year overall survival rate was 2 versus 6% favoring etoposide platinum. And if you look at those in limited stage disease, 3% versus 10% five-year overall survival. And that's what we, we hope that we can cure 10 to maybe 20% of these patients who present with limited stage disease. Uh, so that really established cisplatin etoposide as the standard chemo regimen above uh, CAVE. Now for patients who are not top candidates for cisplatin, um, carboplatin is sufficient uh, in those who have extensive stage disease. We can use carbo for those folks. By, uh, so that's as far as chemotherapy from an oncopharm standpoint, we haven't seen any chemo advances since you know, the establishment of cisplatin and etoposide. And those studies were published in 92 and 2002, but cisplatin and etoposide was overtaking CAVE as the treatment of choice even in the 80s, just based on probably ease of administration. Uh, in the late 1990s, we see the emergence of prophylactic cranial radiation. So patients who have a complete response, they get their, their, you know, their four cycles of platinum etoposide plus radiation uh, with limb to stage disease, uh, or maybe even extensive stage disease, and then there's no evidence of disease. Well, we know that it's such a systematic disease that it can be all over the body at diagnosis, and that chemo is not gonna cross the blood-brain barrier that there's a very good chance that there's already small cell that is spread to the brain. So this was the idea of prophylactic cranial radiation. And to irradiate patients without obvious signs of brain meds, and what they found was a three-year overall survival benefit. So at three years, those who got uh, received prophylactic cr cranial radiation, 20.7 were alive after three years, compared to 15.3%. So that's an absolute benefit of just over 5%, so a pretty low number needed to treat there, uh, all things considered. And then in 1999, we get a publication from the Medical University of South Carolina by Teresa and colleagues published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that hyperfractionated radiation, which is given radiation twice a day instead of once a day, uh, was better than once daily radiation. And there's another study that maybe conflicts this, but at least locally here, we prefer the hyperfractionated radiation for limited uh, stage folks. Uh, and the dosing of cisplatin etoposide in that Teresi paper was 60 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin on day one, and then 120 of etoposide 
on days one, two, and three. So if we do, um, if our radiation oncology, radiation oncology colleagues are gonna take a hyperfractionated approach, which sometimes is feasible, sometimes it's not just based off the patient living far away, then we'll do that 60-120 regimen. Um, the other common regimens you'll see for cisplatin etoposide for small cell lung cancer are anywhere from 75 to 100 milligrams per meter squared per day of cisplatin on day one only, usually 75, uh, or 80 to 100, usually 100 per milligrams per meter squared of etoposide uh, on days one, two, and three. Now, the typical patient with small cell is going to present, because it's an aggressive disease, with usually a short uh, on-ramp of symptoms. Uh, your non-small cell lung cancer patients oftentimes will have already had a cough for a couple months, they will have had a couple rounds of antibiotics, and the whole thing has gone on for two months that they've been symptomatic by the time they're diagnosed. Small cell patients go downhill very quickly, and if treatment is not started uh, promptly, they can, they can deteriorate so quickly they're no longer candidates for chemo. So we see a lot of these folks on the inpatient service. Many of them even get their first cycle of chemo inpatient uh, just because the delay will be too long if we don't start immediately. And because it's such an aggressive disease, the, the deterioration will happen so fast that they can die before they even start treatment. Uh, overall response rates for chemotherapy, uh, plus or minus radiation, um, are, you know, with radiation, so for your limited stage folks, you'll see overall response rates of 80 plus percent. They all uh, will have some response for the most part. Even extensive stage folks just getting chemo, you're looking at response rates above 50 to 60, even up to 80 percent. Um, so the typical patient's going to come in with a long history of heavy smoking. Um, They'll have the typical cough, maybe infections, um, trouble breathing, maybe a post-obstructive pneumonia, and they will start to feel better as soon as chemotherapy starts, and they will be feeling great after their four cycles. And unfortunately, two months later, many of them will relapse, and you're on to second-line treatment. And here in the States, the standard of care for second-line is topotecan, topoisomerase inhibitor, either given PO or IV, it produces overall response rates in about 20% of patients and a median overall survival is thir about 34 weeks. And you know that that's a bad sign if the units we're using to measure median overall survival is in weeks. It's not days, but it's not months and certainly not years. So very difficult disease to treat. One where we can cure some of these limited stage folks, but again, you're talking cure rates less than 20%. And you know, if you talk to oncologists who have done this for a long time, Many of them will maybe have one miracle case of an extensive disease patient with, with a durable response who appears to be cured. So not a whole lot has changed going back to the 80s, so 30, 40 years, not a whole lot of change as far as using chemotherapy for small cell lung cancer until Checkmate 32, which led to the approval of nivolumab uh, in the third line setting. This was based off uh, ch again, Checkmate 32. Uh, the initial results were published in 2016 in Lancet Oncology by uh, Antonia and colleagues. Um, the approval by the FDA and the, the press release maybe has a bit more information just from a longer follow-up. What it doesn't tell you in the press release is that this was a three-arm study of single-agent nivolumab at the standard dose at the time of three mg per kg. Now we would just do a flat dose of 240 milligrams. So Nevo by itself every two weeks or Nevo at 1 mg per kg plus ipilimumab at 3 mg per kg, or Nevo at the standard dose plus a lower dose of ipilimumab at 1 mg per kilogram. Uh, approval was just for single-agent nivolumab based on an overall response rate of 
that uh, was not dependent on PD-L1 expression or status. Um, and of the 109 patients, a 12% response rate means 13 responded. Of those 13, 10 had a response that lasted for six months or more. Eight had a response of a year or more. And then five of those 13 patients that responded, or five of the total cohort of 109, had a response that was a year and a half or longer. So it's not, you know, a 12% overall response rate is not that striking. But it's these durable responses, however uh, low percentage they are, um, you know, a 5% chance of an 18-month overall or an 18-month duration of response is not uh, is not nothing. Uh, actually, it's less than than 5%. It's five of 109. But it is, uh, say, proof in concept that there can be patients who who do very well on immunotherapy. Um, of note, uh, of the, the Nevo and Ipi combinations, the low-dose nivolumab group, so 1 mg per kg of nivolumab plus Ipi, 3 mg per kg, that cohort, uh, if you look at the, the publication, the, the median overall survival curves uh, completely overlap back in the publication in 2016, and that the Nevo low-dose plus high, standard-dose Ipi, there's maybe a trend in progression-free survival benefit there. Um, but that was not the indication, it's just for single-agent nivolumab. Now, based on this study, um, there are a couple ongoing nivolumab studies, so Checkmate 451, which is looking at consolidation nivolumab single-agent or nivolumab and IPI. So these would be patients that get their platinum etoposide radiation and then they have a, a, a response of some kind or at least stable disease. Then they would go on and get really two cycles of consolidation immunotherapy, either Nevo by itself or Nevo plus IPI and then uh, nivolumab maintenance or placebo to see how that works. And there are probably similar studies with pembrolizumab and avelumab and dervalumab and any other immunotherapy. So that's looking at really post-induction therapy or consolidation and maintenance for immunotherapy in small cell to see if that works. And checkmate uh, 331, which is looking at nivolumab versus second-line chemotherapy, so likely a lot of topotecan patients. And then, of course, there are first-line studies of chemotherapy and immunotherapy ongoing. I know that we've investigated putting patients on whatever keynote study was going on for Pembro plus platinum etoposide in the first line setting. Uh, if I had a loved one with small cell lung cancer, I would want to get them on a, a chemo plus immunotherapy first line study to see how that does. So I'm, I want to wrap up with just some practical considerations for small cell lung cancer. It is a very, very aggressive disease. Um, this is one of the few times that you might have to do emergent chemotherapy. So this means you're waking up in the middle of the night or you're coming in on a weekend, depending on your, uh, you know, how your oncology pharmacy is, is scheduled, uh, to give platinum etoposide, either cis or carbo, for a patient with, uh, with, with SVC, superior vena cava syndrome. Uh, you could argue that's a medical emergency. Uh, in our limited stage folks, you would prefer to do cisplatin, um, as your platinum, so cis antitoposide uh, plus radiation, assuming that they are healthy enough to tolerate that, because that's going to be more toxic than one or the other. And again, for limited stage disease, we hope that we can cure, you know, one in ten uh, of those patients, uh, or even or even better than that. So maybe even one in, in eight, maybe 12, 15, 20 percent cure rates. We hope. Um, however, um, you know, if you're doing the the hyperfractionated, you probably would want to do the chemo regimen from the Teresi article, which is 60 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin on day one, and then 120 milligrams per meter squared of etoposide 
on days one, two, and three if you're doing just once a day radiation, probably 75 milligrams per meter squared of cisplatin on day one, and 100 of etoposide on days one, two, and three. Again, 100 milligrams per meter squared. Uh, things to watch for in these patients are gonna be nausea and vomiting because of the cisplatin. Uh, depending on where the chemotherapy, uh, sorry, where the uh, disease is and the radiation schedule, there's a good chance that your the radiation is going to hit the esophagus and cause some esophagitis, maybe mucositis as well that's going to make it hard for patients to swallow and to eat. So oral dosage forms can sometimes be challenging, as can maintaining nutrition. Um, there are going to obviously be infection concerns, not just because we're giving chemo and radiation, uh, but because these patients are usually smokers, they're usually not going to have the healthiest of lungs, uh, often going to have maybe some recent antibiotics from COPD exacerbations, and that can also increase the risk of drug-resistant organisms. Uh, and then finally, this, you know, especially the etoposide is fairly myelosuppressive, but while they're receiving radiation, we avoid giving growth factor as much as we can, um, based off of a, a couple uh, a couple lung cancer studies showing that giving uh, growth factor, filgrastim, at the same time of radiation uh, leads to more uh, cases and more severe thrombocytopenia. For the extensive disease folks, um, if the patients are healthy, and some of these folks can be fairly healthy with a, a good performance status, you could consider concurrent chemotherapy uh, with radiation, even cisplatin, although more often than not you would use a carboplatin etoposide regimen concurrent with radiation. And if the patient had severe uh, systemic disease, maybe with, with superior vena cava syndrome, you would probably choose to do chemo first and then consolidative radiation. Uh, and again, the patients will feel better within the next day after you give chemo. Uh, if they come in with pain from their disease or trouble breathing from their disease, they'll feel better after one day of chemo. Again, very aggressive disease. And what does chemotherapy kill? Rapidly dividing cells and small cells dividing very rapidly. So it's very sensitive to chemo. Uh, but then again, unfortunately, because it is so aggressive, uh, often we cannot kill it all and we do have those relapses. Um, many of these patients are, are not going to be um, fit with extensive stage disease for concurrent chemoradiation and they'll come in with significant breathing problems. And again, long-term smokers, long-term lung damage. Um, so in those patients, uh, they can be fairly hypoxic and a lot of, on a lot of oxygen. In those patients, it makes more sense to do radiation first uh, and then as they improve, consider adding chemo as they can tolerate it later on uh, in the treatment course. So I hope you enjoyed that. That's the, uh, you know, the established advances in small cell and then unfortunately just the, the single recent advance. Uh, it is a challenging disease to, feed, to treat, um, but one that we encounter quite a bit here in mid-Appalachia. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, find us on iTunes, rate, review us, tell us what you like about the podcast, what you'd like to hear more about. I'm interested uh, if you are, uh, if you enjoy this uh, this format and want to learn more about the disease states as uh, and how the oncology pharmacy fits into those disease states, um, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at PharmDietzNib. Uh, you can follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. Thanks for listening, and as always, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Thank you.